Welcome to the latest edition of the Movement 8 podcast. Uh, I am here with uh, Paul Ridgway, the founder from The Curve. Um, and just as a um, reminder of, of what the framework for uh, for the session is, um, the Road CIO podcast has been developed with uh, operational or delivery focused technology leaders in mind who are aiming to uh, ascertain a C-suite uh, level or an executive director position. And it's all about the mindset and strategies that, uh, that the modern day C-suite leader needs. So um, Paul, really nice to, uh, to spend some time with you. Just tell me a little bit about um, what you're up to at The Curve. Yeah, so uh, broadly speaking, uh, Curve is a technology consultancy. Um, what that means in reality is we spend probably 10 or 20% of our time doing more consulting-like activities, helping people figure out uh, solutions to the problems they've got, strategy and so on. And then the remaining kind of 80, 90% of the time is actually building those solutions because the nature of what we do, most of what we are advising people on is uh, more bespoke rather than off the shelf. They usually come to us because off the shelf is for some reason not an option. Um, yeah. And through the consulting work, it's uh, it's providing the level of input that somebody needs. So a uh, small business, you know, they don't need like a full on experienced CTO type person. They need somebody with enough technical expertise and kind of problem solving ability to help them get to that next step. Whereas if you've got a bigger organization with bigger challenges, you might need that more sophisticated uh, input. And so we provide kind of that, that balance and mix of ability to them. Okay, perfect. And, and what's been your what's been your journey to, uh, to 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 this point in terms of kind of background in your career and um, uh, and then obviously starting and founding the the curve. Uh, sorry, two seconds. I got a call coming on the iPad that's just messed up with the meeting. Okay, no worries. Do I just put that question again? It's, it's come back all day now. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so. Just tell me about your your journey and your background to uh, to, to to this point. Yeah, so um, I, I don't know, I've been messing around with software for uh, I don't know, twenty plus years now, give or take. Um, obviously, twenty odd years ago, it was very much a hobby, not a job. Um, and so, my interest has always been oriented around technology, uh, electronics to a lesser extent, um, and so going through education I, I kind of picked things that uh related to that so did a software engineering degree for example um thought that would be an easy way through um it was not quite as easy and fun as i thought but um <laughs> had to do something uh through education and especially in like the later years of school and then into university i started picking up freelance projects for people so the classic one that a lot of people start with is doing like noddy websites and php or something like that yeah um, very much where i started in, in the old school days of like asp before net um and so started picking up kind of paid work uh continued that for university with a couple of projects um I developed a couple of things that ended up uh, being interesting to people so i got uh, people wanting to buy um versions of the software and so always had that kind of opportunity to do commercial development even if it's at quite a basic level at the time yeah um, after uni went and got a job in london really didn't like that for various reasons uh, commuting was a factor but it wasn't the only thing uh, ended up moving back to sheffield and well it, it was kind of i think of my second proper job out of uni 
when, when I moved back to Sheffield, I started freelancing, went part time with that um, and had the opportunity to join a startup called The Blow. That was back in late 2011, going into 2012. Um, mm -hmm. When we started that, it was me and two others. I did pretty much all the development work in the early days. Uh, the other guys were more involved in uh, kind of pitching and evangelizing around what we were doing. And over the, I don't know what it was, eight, nine years I was there, it went from being me as a sole developer to a team of kind of 80 or 90 developers, engineers, uh, design ops and other people well, um, okay. reporting to me. And so my role evolved over time to get to that point. So I went from being you know, sole software engineer to CTO and lots of kind of inflection and transition points along the way where what I needed to do evolved, what the team needed to evolve, what we were considering to be like regular challenges, you know, moved around. And so that that uh, brought a, a lot of very interesting experience from dealing with technology problems. Uh, the more people you have, the more people problems you end up having. Yeah. So in the latter years, I think I probably had more people issues than tech issues. For, at yeah. least for, for me personally, did quite a lot of travel, meeting clients and pitching as well. Uh, you know, moved very much away from hands-on critical path stuff to very much the opposite. Um, and then when I eventually left and we set up the curve, uh, one of the things we were looking to achieve in the loose sense is using that experience that had been uh, accrued over the years uh, to start a new business and make it available to other people. You know, we, yeah, along the way, made plenty of mistakes, learned many lessons. And so making that learning available to other people and when they're embarking on a technology project or similar, um, was all kind of part of what we wanted to do. So now delivering software is still a very big part of that. Um, but equally, you know, when we're talking to people about how they can approach a problem or solving a problem, we also know that they don't need to boil the ocean, various other things that we've learned from from that journey. Some of our customers were also startups. So, you know, the the, the, mm -hmm. the um the experience that came before it can be quite useful to them but even when it comes to things like navigating funding or hiring strategy you know they're kind of on the fringes of like core technology but if you've only got budget for a handful of people you know having some input into what mix you might want to hire and what you might outsource as well could be quite useful yeah okay and, and i mean the growth that you experienced there going from kind of sole developer to leading a team of, of 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 80 of 80 people is 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 pretty dramatic so were there were there specific challenges that you that you faced from a leadership perspective kind of i, I presume it didn't go from zero to, to to 80 you know overnight but but as that team grew and, and expanded as you say you have more people problems yeah it, it depended on the phase of the business so we kind of went in we went in certain increments so we, we went from a handful of people to 10 and then to 15 and then to 13 and 16 you know kind of every year <clears throat> probably loosely got a doubling effect for a good chunk of it and obviously some of that was tied to things like investment mm. um in the early days when it was a small team it was the challenges were largely around to how best to use the time we had the very limited time as we solved one problem so we got the uh, original proposition involved an Android and iOS app, and back in those days, native was really the only option. So we already had to hire a couple of people to do that. Once we got some stability with that code base and so on, we then realized that we had a quality problem. So we need to focus on QA. And so 
in those early years, it was a little bit of almost like a, I don't know, chessboards type thing of moving people around and resources to to try and deal with the emerging challenges of having a, um, a small and growing team. You know, mm-hmm. we, didn't, we didn't bring in a lot of external expertise and that's so there was a lot of figuring out as you go. Um, and a lot of what I did where possible was pick up the roles where we were lacking until they became a full time thing. So yeah, um, once we got Dev and QA in place, we had enough, a big enough team to need some project management. So I then started picking up that, doing Gantt charts and all that sort of stuff. Became pro, kind of proved it was a full time role, hired somebody in. Next gap was in kind of the clarity of our requirements. So started doing a BA type role and, you know, kind of wearing all those hats to to get us to a point where we had stability across a number of full time roles. So yeah, it wasn't until a good three or four years in where we had like a full time ops person or two, full time BA or two project manager to complement QA, dev and design and all those kind of functions that you'd normally expect. Um, so in parallel to that, as the team grew, the challenges were around kind of how do we organise ourselves to deliver effectively. Don't think I ever cracked that one before I left because we had very functional teams in terms of like Android, iOS, platform, data science. Um, had done a lot of reading at the time around different models like um, Spotify and various others. And <clears throat> given more time, probably would have tried to restructure things more significantly to be more cross-functional teams and remove some of the handover and pain points. Um, but we did manage to do that with one of our internal projects, have a much more cohesive team than kind of handing over between departments. Yeah. Um, hiring was always a challenge. I mean, this is not really necessarily a leadership thing, but there are different strategies. Um, in Sheffield, and this is pre-COVID, so that kind of implicit yeah. expectation was that people would be in or around the office. Uh, I think Manchester and Leeds, and maybe to a lesser extent York and, and Nottingham, pull people away. You know, you've got a lot of big tech companies yeah. in their cities. So hiring was always a challenge and some of our strategy involved um, forging some quite strong relationships with recruiters and some slightly more creative um, kind of payment structures to keep them incentivized and okay. manage our yeah. costs. And so we, we had quite a successful year where we were, we were trying to hire, I think, 30 devs in total post-investment. Uh, and with, with one recruiter, we managed 21 of those hires, which, you know, wow. okay. it's, not, it's not bad going when you look at, you know, what it sometimes yeah. takes to hire. Well, I, w- I wish I'd known you then. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we did learn, and, and this is something that I think is, I think a lot of people don't know because it's not well explained, is it, it, it pays to invest in a relationship with a small number of recruitment companies, not a lot. Yeah. You know, don't accept every offer and a low fee that comes through. But equally, if you lowball, so, you know, when we negotiate, if we, if we secure a low fee the recruiter is ultimately not incentivized to work on our project compared to somebody else's and you know it took us a couple of years to realize that and that's why we ended up doing a retained deal yeah big hiring so that it was kind of a mutually beneficial thing it probably wasn't the cheapest way for us to do it but we were getting preferential treatment as a result and so we could move forward absolutely yeah and that that good you know not not to plug recruiters too much but that that good ongoing (laughs) relationship means that when when something does go wrong when somebody quits unexpectedly or, or something like that you're not necessarily completely um, left in the lurch and, and needing to bring somebody up to speed with what you're looking for in candidates and so on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely, definitely the best way to go, particularly if you're scaling at a pace. Yeah, yeah and, and that, that was one of our biggest challenges across the whole time was hiring. And I don't think that's yeah. changed now, even with the market being a bit different, you know. Yeah. Hiring and hiring good people are also two very different things. Yeah. 
Uh, and we learned a lot with that. You know, we brought in some really experienced people who were really opinionated and they were very difficult to mould and or to, you know, adapt. And one of the things that, and people say this quite a lot, you know, you should, you should hire for culture and teach the other skills. And it's, it's 100% true. There are people we mm-hmm. hired because they were very, very good. Uh, in hindsight, they didn't really fit very well. Yeah. And equally, the people who, who fitted well culturally, they didn't really struggle to get up to speed, you know, providing they had the aptitude. Um, and then in the, in the final years when the team was quite big, you know, the, there was a lot of um, work to do around making sure that we, we were still able to work effectively with such a big team. You know, communication, handoff points, documentation, all of that sort of stuff was kind of tricky. Information flow, you know, 100 or 80 odd people across 10 teams. Is, there's a lot of information changing hands in a lot of different directions. Um, we had a lot of projects going on in parallel, so, you know, we had that plus, like I say, more people is just more people problems. Um, and it, it would be a wide range of things from like how people worked. Um, you know, you, you, at that point, you, you'd have your fair share of um, unsuccessful hires where they've had to exit yeah. for some reason or be exited. Um, and that kind of just got, I guess, that magnified as the team size grew. But um, we had a very good HR lead. So I, worked, I ended up working quite closely with her because, you know, a lot of my things related to people, whether it was personal development, uh, reviews, hiring, all that sort of stuff then became, you know, quite a sizable kind of HR project in its own right. And, yeah. You know, managing people's performance, that's so scale is very different to when you've got a handful of people, uh, managing things like sickness, uh, LTO, all those sorts of things become more of a focus as well, because you also need to see where your problems might be emerging. Yeah. It's it, it's that it's a kind of that growing pains, isn't it, from being able to manage a small team, spend lots of time with them, have that daily interaction, and and you know you get that you know almost coaching time with them, um, to having to rely on processes that you put that you put in place. Um, I, I'm really interested in, in in the point you made about um, culture and 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 hiring people who. You know, we're, we're brilliant technically, but but perhaps not not the right cultural fit. Um, did, did that kind of test test you as a leader, and how did you how did you deal with some of those some of those situations? Because it's that's it's quite it's quite a learning curve to go from you know not not too many people to to, to quite difficult challenges around that. Yeah, I mean, there are notable changes over time. Uh, you know, in the early days, everybody knows everybody. It feels quite familiar. It's it's almost like friends. It's not quite, you know, acquaintances type thing. But yeah. You know and like everyone. And then over time, you bring people into the business who, you know, you don't like them from a personality point of view so much and things like that. And it's, it's different whether it's your, when it's your hire and when it's not. Um, but, and you get to the kind of more towards the end of this journey and it, you're literally struggling to remember some people's names, which was a very interesting and slightly difficult place to be when you used to being able yeah. to talk to everybody. Um, but yeah, bringing in people who didn't fit was interesting. And one of the mistakes that we made on a recurring basis is not dealing with that. Uh, there are some mm. people who we probably should have encouraged to move on for everyone's benefit, but because they were technically good at their job or functionally good at their job, depending on what it was, um, that was given possibly too much priority. And yeah. so ended up in situations where with people where, you know, you didn't really want to have a conversation or a meeting because it wasn't necessarily going to be super productive or you knew, yeah. you knew what sort of pushback you get. And so when I had 
people like that as direct reports where I found that there wasn't really this great fit. I had to, you had to manage that really and be quite transparent with people. Yeah. Um, so the, the people who were good at the job but clashed quite a lot one way or another, it was generally quite transparent and direct feedback. You deliver it as softly as is right. You know, you don't go straight yeah. to the like, here's everything that's wrong, go and fix it. <laughs> you, know, you get get people working to examples where they've maybe not achieved the best result because of how they've approached somebody or they've not thought about it from somebody else's perspective. Um, yeah. And with most of those cases, we managed to make progress shall we say um it was slow often because you know getting people trying to get people to change or adapt into how they are is is never an easy thing especially if you've been you know working for a number of years but like i said my in hindsight with a couple of them it would have been better just to acknowledge that there isn't the right fit here and yeah get quicker and that's certainly a lesson we've carried forward from those days to the curb is where, where we do have situations that aren't working is, is dealing with them a lot more head-on yeah, uh, and now it's influenced our interviewing process and everything. You know, we're looking at how people engage with us, how they talk, how they take critical feedback. Um, one of the biggest challenges, and you know, I'm biggest guilty is this: is anyone is arrogant in these things. You think you're right, and you don't listen to the feedback. Yeah. Uh, so when we're doing like technical exercises or interviews, we're looking at how people respond to not just the positives but the negatives, and whether they work with you to, you know, get past whatever that is versus you know, being stubborn or pushing back. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it's it's a hard thing to course correct, which I think is why a lot of people say a similar sort of phrase around hire for culture, not for ability. Yeah. Uh, because that, that personality fit either is or isn't there in, in, in reality. Best case, somebody will try and adapt, but they'll probably fall back to type at some point or when the yeah. pressure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I think, you know, you, you kind of, you, you develop your uh leadership principles and philosophies from from some of these difficult situations um where where do you think your core belief system and and, and leadership principles have been have, have been evolved from and, and and have come from um a lot of it has evolved from making mistakes more than yeah. anything you know you, you you try something and it doesn't work and you end up trying something else so <clears throat> I do quite a lot of reading around business and stuff as well. So there's, there's mm-hmm. always hints and I think getting a good cross section of information from other sources that you can draw inspiration from is quite useful, but apply, you've got to be careful not to apply it kind of religiously or, you know, strictly. But like I said, most of it is making mistakes and, and eventually kind of undoing those mistakes by changing how you approach things. So with, for example, solving problems as a group, it was very easy for me to sit down in a room with the team leads or something like that and say, right, this is what I want to do. But the problem then is you've, you've not got the buy-in, you've not taken the time to explore the options with them, you've not got their opinions or anything like that. And so while it might go forward and it might go fine, um, people potentially haven't got to the same place you have as quickly, or they might have a better idea or both, you know, any number yeah. of outcomes is really there. And so over time, I evolved a lot of what I did, in, in especially in some of those kind of more leadership or strategic meetings to be like here's a problem here's something that's emerging whatever it might be what are we going to do and what i found is that probably 99 times out of 100 the team converged on pretty much where i would have gone anyway yeah because they got there it was their idea they were bought in um they've had the time to explore it and debate probably some of the finer points which i might have in my head but hadn't you know wouldn't have communicated clearly if i'd just gone in and said like this is what we're doing 
and so that but that was an evolution you know it took it took um you know a bit of trust and uh i don't know at the time it would have felt like thinking outside the box to say right let's just yeah. give these people the problem and see what they come up with and then as that you know as that delivered and whatever problem we were trying to solve it would take some time to actually work through implementing whatever we came up with carrying that forward as well as quite well in, in making the team or whoever we're working with responsible for, for being part of the solution rather than almost treating them like the problem and telling them how they've got to change um, yeah. and there was lots of things kind of like that but different so you know with one-to-ones turning up with an agenda is one thing but then the person you're talking to, they don't really have to work for it. They don't have to put in the effort. And the, the one-to-one is as much probably about them and their development as it is about anything else. And so yeah. a similar learning that we had was encouraging people to put in the legwork and do those things and actually almost make it uncomfortable and a bit awkward if they didn't. So, yeah. you know, one of my colleagues who, who worked for me at the time as well, uh, developed a strategy of just sitting there in silence waiting for them to speak, which after a couple of minutes and similar <laughs> awkwardness, you know, we got past that quite quickly and it became a bit of a thing. But it worked yeah. because it forced people to go in with something and actually think about it for next time. Yeah. And again, that didn't necessarily come from any particular nugget of advice or, or kind of source of wisdom. It was just from getting fed up almost to putting in all the efforts. You know, if you've got 10 direct reports, which is quite a lot, let's say six, and you're yeah. doing that for all their one-to-ones and then doing their one-to-ones, you know, you're probably spending six hours a week or a fortnight doing the prep and then another you know up to six doing them whereas if every one of your reports does their own prep and comes to you with what they want and you work with them on that it, it helps all that scalability as well and so you know one of the, the biggest learnings and the most difficult things in all of this with delegating that comes yeah. back to my first example delegating the problems to the team you know one-to-ones delegating the prep to the employee that was the hardest transition through all of it though going from the only developer who knew the code base inside out to mm. one of a few developers who still knew more about most of it than anyone to, you know, eight years on doing no critical path development because I wasn't the right person to do it ultimately. But it's yeah. at that time, yeah, I, and even today I can do it, but I hate writing tests, for example. Yeah. And, and some of those <laughs> things I consider best practice and, you know, I, everything's in my head, so I'm not fussed about documentation. So I'm probably an awful person to work with in a team now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it took years to recognize that and uh, you know there were people who were simply better not necessarily because they were smarter or more technically able but because they they enjoyed that whole life cycle of developing software yeah. whereas i just wanted to solve the tricky bit of the problem and then move on to something else yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah. So, did, so that's that that's a um there's there's quite a a fundamental point in there in in people who have come from come from technical backgrounds and grown teams grown pro developed products um and got to cto level uh, or or similar um and and have to let go of let go of the tech the art of letting go um and it's it's the trend that's the transition that so many people really struggle to make is getting out of the weeds and being able to look at the whole business and think far more strategically. So how did you how did you adapt and cope with 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 that kind of letting go? Um, originally, it was difficult and I didn't really, um, you know, yeah, I, I very often fell into the trap of, oh, it'd be quicker if I do it or I'm the only one yeah. who based it or whatever it was. But then I never actually had or made the time because I had meetings, customer stuff, whatever else, one to ones, you know, all the stuff that filled up a week quite quickly yeah um, and 
at first it became probably most apparent because I was the one the bottleneck and I was always making excuses um and at a point you kind of just have to try it and point somebody at you know this is what I was going to do here's a couple of hints to get started see where you get to um and eventually one way or another you'd find that it wasn't a complete disaster it wasn't necessarily yeah. as quick or as efficient as if you'd done it yourself if you'd found or made the time but it got done somebody learned some new skills they learned a new bit of domain they knew learn you know an area of the code base they haven't touched before and then next time that problem comes around you can you could give it to them already or you can yeah, yeah. Them to work with somebody else and so it was it was through effectively trial and error that i started to not quite I just not I didn't believe in it but realized that this was a, you know the way to go and I had the same challenge we had a lot of people who we promoted from developer roles to team lead roles and stuff like that yeah uh, and so we had a lot of people to try and get through that same learning process because they had just been hands-on developers and you know um it's, I saw the same sort of pain in a lot of people and I still sometimes see it today you've got to remind them that every now and then it might take twice as long as first time but just give it to somebody else because it'll still probably get done twice as quickly because you won't get to it for another two weeks at best. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it also depends what motivates you. So for me, I quite like problem solving. That's what got me into things like software. You know, code was a means to an end to solve a problem and build a solution. The actual writing of the code is fairly inconsequential. Um, it's, it's that end result. And whether it's running a business or running a team, if you're able to, for me at least, if I've got a plan that solves a problem or it builds on the business or it does something productive and I can use the team around me to deliver that, that scratches that same itch. It just took a while to realise it because it also it happens at a different pace. You don't you don't do it yourself and you're not entirely responsible for the outcomes. But um, there's still that sense of satisfaction. It's just a bigger project, so it takes a bit longer. Um, yeah, we, we went from releasing in very short cycles, maybe weeks or months, depending on the thing. To some of the big projects we did at the end of um, my time at the flow where we were, we were planning in quarters and it felt really painful but what yeah. we delivered at the end of the quarter was one of our biggest projects was absolutely immense in terms of the technical effort that we'd done and what it meant from a business point of view and for the customers and similarly yeah. today because I'm, I'm not really on the tech side so much at, at the curve I, I leave those guys alone for the reasons that I kind of mentioned earlier yeah uh, and we've got a CTO and that's that's kind of his job mine's more on the sales marketing and all that other stuff um and so i've got a much leaner team these days but it's grown a little bit and being able to actually delegate again some of these projects where i am one way or another being a bottleneck because i've left it with me has again allowed me to almost be that kind of puppet master a little bit and get these things yeah. moving um without thinking about you know am i going to work until stupid o'clock at night to get it done which these days i don't do because that's a false economy as well so what yeah. it means is those things move slower um, but I think so, yeah, you, you, you kind of got to try it, force yourself to try it and then realise that unless you delegate it to the wrong person completely or you provide insufficient instructions, which both of those would be on you, um, yeah. it should work and you, you should see the value. Yeah, and um, it's almost almost born out of necessity rather than strategically thinking, OK, I'm going to delegate this, I'm going to delegate that. And then and then it snowballs because you're like, OK, yeah, that's 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 work that nothing's no, nothing's broken. No one's died. Uh, we can we can we can do a bit more of that. Yeah, Paul, thank you so much for, for, for taking the time to have a chat with me. It's been it's been fascinating. Um, and um, yeah, look, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks. Thanks for having Thanks me. Thanks a lot.